0: And I want to introduce to you uh, a a fellow who joined our church recently, and I've asked him if he would tell his story this morning and share his testimony with you. And when he's done, then we're going to sing a little bit more. But uh, every once in a while, isn't it good to just hear a testimony of someone who is a trophy of God's grace? And Rob, thank you for being willing to share that today.
1: You're welcome. First of all, I'd like to thank Pastor John for laying down this challenge to me. Uh, But at the same time, I'll pray that I forgive you. And I pray that all of you forgive him for inflicting me upon you. So let's say it all together right now John, we forgive you. I was raised in religion. My parents were members of a Presbyterian church. We attended regularly. I went to Sunday school. I was confirmed in the Presbyterian Church USA at the age of 11. I heard the gospel, but the gospel in Christ did not enter my heart. So I entered young adulthood going off to college, just like anyone else without Christ. Short of criminal behavior, any type of sin, as long as it was socially acceptable and done in moderation, was all right. I was a moralistic deist, not a Christian. While I would not deny there must be a God who created the universe, I did not honor the Lord in any way. And I frequently went so far as to mock anyone that, I, that appeared to be God-fearing and righteousness. So the pursuit of success, money, and my own pleasure were my only concerns for most of my life. But then, the bottom dropped out of it all. What I thought was a brilliant career on Wall Street hit a brick wall. Then I failed miserably in my own business. Stripped of the external trappings of success, I was forced to see myself for who I really was and not what I could show the world and I did not like what I saw. I was unfaithful in my marriage. My ego and vain pride led to the wasting of money that was not mine to use. In other words, in simple words, I was an adulterer and a thief. Knowing I was a failure as a husband and head of a household, I spiraled downward into a black pit of depression and addictions. Over the course of years, thinking of my two children was the only thing that kept me from acting upon suicidal thoughts that were never far from my mind. And I continued to destroy my marriage and what I believed my life should be. So now let me tell you how God led me to repentance and freedom. In February of 2010, I had been living on my own for one year. And my own children, just 8 and 11 at the time, reminded me of Christ. You see, even though I was really an enemy of Christ at the time, I had told my children that Christ is real, that he is the Son of God. And that he had died on the cross to save us from our sin. In spite of the fact that I had never once taken my children to church in their entire lives, my kids, they knew the gospel, believed the gospel, and identified themselves as Christians. They wanted to start going to church together. Somewhere in my heart, I knew that God was my only hope. But for years, I felt that God would never help me unless I could cleanse myself of my horrible sins. Of course, this kind of thinking is completely backwards and a trap. On Sunday, February 21st, 2010, I was without my children, I missed them terribly. My marriage was beyond repair. The job I had was doomed to end within months. I had only one friend in the world who would not spurn my brokenness. But he had gone out of town. I felt completely alone, homeless, helpless. All my ambition and ego were in ruins. I had no real hope for the future. I just wanted to survive. So my children did not have to endure the trauma of losing a father who killed himself. On that day, as I considered, continued to consider my hopeless circumstances, fear gripped my soul and I was overtaken by panic. Once again, suicide presented itself as the only escape from my despair. I regretted not having a rope at hand so I could hang myself. As I doubted I could hold myself together well enough to go out to a store and buy one. I was so overtaken by panic that I could not sit down. I could not drive a car. So I popped a couple of tranquilizers and walked the streets aimlessly. Hours passed before I was finally able to calm down. That evening, I was completely exhausted. But Monday morning came around, and until the following week, work and my children were distracting enough to keep the worst of my fears out of my mind. But on the next Sunday morning, February 28, 2010, I felt the panic that had crippled me just a week before coming on like a steam train again. After driving to the gym, I thought, well, I'll just get some exercise and things will be okay. I can de-stress. Then the voice of God suddenly entered my mind and declared, you can go into that gym and exercise, but when you come back out again, you will feel the same, if not worse, than you do now. I stopped in my tracks. And there, sitting in my car, I looked over to a small notebook I had left on the passenger seat. In that notebook, I had noted the service times of a local church. I was in time for the 11 o'clock service. So I drove over to that church, and after parking the car, I hesitated, though, once again. And another voice, not of God, entered my head and said, Do you really think God will accept you and help you? You're a filthy sinner. You are a hypocrite. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit prevailed, and I got out of the car and started across the parking lot. My legs felt like lead. At the church door, I was greeted warmly at the door by a brother with a broad smile and a hearty handshake. That morning in the sanctuary, I did not even have to hear the sermon. The worship music at the beginning of the service was enough to pierce my heart, and tears flowed down my cheeks. I had never cried like that in my entire life. My tears were from release, not sorrow. So from that moment, only three and a half years ago, God has given me, a completely new life and joy. And from the moment I surrendered to Christ, I felt like the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, the heavy burden of my sin, dropped completely from my shoulders at the foot of the cross. I know it's not the same for everyone, but in my case, can I tell you just how merciful and good God is to me? My addictions vanished because Christ broke my chains. My depression lifted because God's grace restored to me the joy of salvation. Panic and crippling anxiety disappeared because he gave me faith to trust him, although trials did not end. For the first time in my life, I had the God-given liberty to choose what is good and pleasing to him. Repentance, freedom from sin, and the blessed joy in knowing Christ should be enough for any of us. But God has given me so much more. I was alone. But God is sharing with me my beautiful wife. I did not have a job or any hope of finding one. But God dropped a job right in my lap. My wife and I had hopes of sharing a new home. It seemed impossible to get a mortgage. But God gave us the way to buy a house. Last, but not by any means least, injustice sought to marginalize me as a father. But God invested his authority in me and strengthened me as the earthly father to my two biological children. And if that were not enough, in a way, God gave to me four more children who had no father of their own. What more can I say? I can't boast, because all my blessings were given to me. God has given me a wonderful church family, I am so grateful for our pastors, elders, and everyone in this wonderful little church that is true to the word of God. I can never thank God enough for putting me here just so I could tell you how God, my God, is to me. Thank you.
0: grace and peace to you, to you all. We're going to sing right now. We have to sing of God's marvelous grace and tell Him that His grace is enough. Let's. On the back of your sermon outline, you can follow in the text. If you don't have your Bible with you, here are the first five verses of this great letter. Paul, an apostle, Amen. Several years ago, about 25 of us in this church went down to Broadway, to Times Square. Actually, it was off Broadway to see Max McLean's marvelous presentation of the screw tape letters. And I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's marvelous book. I pulled mine out. I've had it for 30 years, and I went read through it again this week. And we marvel at how C.S. Lewis uh, speaks to us in this story about a high-ranking demon named Screwtape who was mentoring one of the junior demons to try and trip up and sabotage the faith of a young man who's very interested in the things of God. And Screwtape comes to his mentor, his mentee, Wormwood, and his most devious strategy is to, to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and, or Christianity plus. And Tape. I guess this was written just after World War II, and he talks about Christianity and the new psychology, or Christianity and faith healing, or Christianity and vegetarianism. And here's what Screwtape was trying to do. He tells Wormwood that he will be successful in the sabotage and the shipwrecking of the faith of Christians if he will tempt them to add something else to their faith. In Jesus and the gospel. You see, wormwood, you've got to persuade them that it's Jesus plus something else that will save them. My friends, there is something in all of our flesh, there is something that runs deep. Inside our psyche that makes us think that we must add at least something to our salvation, to the work of Jesus Christ. And those things are often good things, things we desire, even things we think could bring glory to God. I'm talking about Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus social justice. Jesus plus Bible study. Jesus plus going to church. And screw tape will whisper, Aren't these good things? And we will say, Well, yes. And then he will whisper, Well, Aren't these the things that make you look good? And I say, why, why, yes, of course. That must be what makes me acceptable to God. And you know, you're right. I should congratulate myself on my accomplishments and the things that I've done well for the Lord. And here's what Screwtape says on page 71 in the Screwtape letters. He says, What we want in Him is the strongest and most beautiful of the vices. Spiritual pride. And surely that's what God wants, we begin to reason. I can't show up empty-handed. You know, it was so interesting. We had a potluck dinner last week at the church, and, and some people didn't come because they said, I didn't have anything to bring. Oh. And some people think, I can't come to God empty-handed. Surely He wouldn't want that. I've got to prove myself to Him. And so you do. You set out to do it. And when you get to that point, let me ask you, when you get to that point, who is your Savior? You are. My friend Jack Miller used to say that in every human heart there is this desperate desire to add at least one brick to the house of my salvation. And then Jack would say, whether you know it or not, you begin to believe that that brick is what saves you. My friends, we begin a new study in a book of the Bible that is hot with this subject. And for the next several months, it's going to burn inside of us. Paul writes this letter, you'll notice it's in the plural, to the churches of Galatia. He's not just writing to one church in southern Turkey. It's to the churches. And so we know that this is a book to be read in the churches. And it's not just for churches 2,000 years ago. This is a book written to people on Long Island, New York, in the 21st century. And I want you to know, for some of you, I believe this is going to be the most liberating and beautiful sermon series you've ever heard. And for some of us, it is going to be very unpleasant week after week. But I want you to come anyway, because we will be forced to ask again and again, who are you trusting for your salvation? Really? In your heart of hearts, who do you trust? Martin Luther was gripped by the book of Galatians, and he understood that it was not just written to one church. He said, this was written to the church in Germany in the 1500s, and again, like I said, it's written to the church on Long Island in the 21st century. He quoted it so often, he preached the simple cross of Christ. He preached the simple resurrection of Christ week after week after week, so one of his people came up to him and he said, Dr. Luther… Why do you preach the same gospel message every week? And Luther said to him, Because you forget it. And he's right. Now, as you know, If you want to understand the Bible, one of the rules in all our home Bible studies, in our Sunday school classes, one of the rules is if you want to understand the Bible for the 21st century, you also need to understand it in the context of the 1st century, when it was written. And so we go back, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, when Paul and Barnabas go on that first missionary journey. And if you own a study Bible, you can see a map, right? You can see uh, the description of that first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas go across that southern region of what is today Turkey. And everywhere they go, people are converted to Christ and churches are planted. And they get to the end and then they double back over it and they visit the churches and they end up back at Antioch. And not long after they get back, they hear, that something has happened to the churches they planted. And a great controversy erupts, and this book has to be written before actually uh, Acts 15, uh, when the church council at Jerusalem meets to discuss what has happened. But what happened were, there were these Jewish Christians who began to insist that Gentiles, in order to be saved, had to become law-keeping Jews first. And they became known by Ju- the term Judaizers. They were Judaizers. And one of the greatest students of the book of Galatians was the New Testament professor, J. Gresham Machen, who founded Westminster Seminary. And, and he says in his, in his comments on this book, he says, the really serious error into which they fell was not simply that they were trying to carry the ceremonial law over into the new dispensation where Christ did not intend it to be carried, The really serious error was that they preached a religion of human merit as over against a religion of divine grace. And so Machen says that the error of the Judaizers is not an ancient error. It's a very modern error. It's a counterfeit gospel trying to teach wayward and to seduce wayward Christians who come to really believe that it's Jesus plus that saves me, Christianity plus that saves me, trying to earn my way to heaven. And Machen says this attacks the very heart and core of the Christian religion, and so he says the mighty arguments of the book of Galatians turn against them, and that is what we're going to study for the next several months I want you to be with us. Paul writes this letter under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the churches, and we are one of those churches, okay? Now, point number two is that right in his greeting, Paul is exalting, and he exalts in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You expect that later on in the epistle, but right up front, now he starts and he says... This, this is Christ risen from the dead. This is the one in whose name I greet you. Oh, it's true. He begins with His own name, Paul, an apostle. And you know what that word means, don't you? It's a, it's a Greek word that means messenger or sent one. And Jesus appointed apostles to be His official messengers. And then He met Paul on the Damascus road, and He made him also an apostle, one of his special official messengers. And Paul, later on, we'll see in, in chapter 1, verses 15, he does acknowledge, not he's not boasting, he just simply says, the Lord set me apart in order that I might preach Him among, among the Gentiles. And Paul is called as an apostle. But more importantly, he says, I am called by God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son who is risen from the dead. This is so interesting to me because in the Bible, in those intense moments when Jesus reveals Himself, you remember in Revelation chapter 1 when John is on the island of Patmos and the, the glorified Christ meets Him there, and He turns and He beholds the One who's who is, his hair is white like wool and His eyes are like blazing fire and His voice is like the sound of rushing waters and His face shines like the sun in all its brilliance and then He speaks. And when He introduces Himself, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And here it comes. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of first importance. And in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul talks about what is of first importance, you know, that's a long book of the Bible, he gets to chapter 15 and then he says, but let me tell you what is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day you want to know what matters most? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so even as Paul greets the church, he says, let's remember that He died and He rose again. Now, in the history of the church, it has been so beautiful. So many preachers and so many writers emphasize the centrality of the cross, and that's good, isn't it? The cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because, my friends, never forget, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Don't kid yourself. Sin must be paid for, and it is the blood of the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb, the blood of Christ that atones. That's a great word. That pays for our sins, my sin, your sin. But listen, the cross is not enough. If you only have the cross... You only have a dead Jesus. Albert Schweitzer of our parents' generation, a missionary in Africa, really just said Jesus never left the cross. And that's a mistake. What else must you have? What else has God given us? The resurrection from the dead, the triumph over death, the death of death in the death of Christ. And some preachers want to emphasize this, and that is so good triumph. This is why in our church, somebody might wonder, you know, why we don't have a crucifix. We don't have a crucifix. Well, we actually, we do have a crucifix. Um, A somewhat nice person donated this lovely brass cross to us, and, and it actually is a crucifix, and it has the symbol of Christ on the front. But, you know, ever since the Reformation, ever since Luther and Calvin and Knox and Edwards Ever since that time, the church has needed to remind herself that Jesus Christ is not some shriveled, defeated uh, good guy still hanging on the cross, because the cross is empty, and the tomb is empty, and death is dead and has been killed by the death of Christ. He is alive. The women said, go, tell Peter and the disciples he is alive. On Good Friday, I turn this around, and that's about the only day that we do that. We mean no disrespect to the death of Christ, but never forget the cross is empty. So what is most important, the cross or the resurrection? Both! Both! We must have both. You do not want the, the triumph of Jesus while you're still in your sins. That does you no good and you don't want Jesus still dead, that proves nothing. So right at the beginning, in his greeting, Paul lists he who has died and raised from the dead, and he will trace those threads through this great book of the Bible as it's through the whole Bible. Now, he does, this is point number three, he wants to make something very clear. Notice that he says, the message of the gospel came to you not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And the point here is very important for us. It's this, that the message of the gospel is a supernatural message, and it is given to you not from down here, but from up there. Okay? What was last week all about? Last week was all about the fact that our God is a self-revealing God. Everybody has a worldview, everybody has some opinion of God, either they're an atheist, there is no God, or they're a deist, there's a God but He's far off, but the living and true God of the Bible is a God who makes Himself known, and He speaks to us. That must be an anchor in your world and life view. God speaks, He speaks down to you, and my friends, Paul is just underscoring here in his very greeting that this message comes from top down to you. And I want you to believe that God has spoken to you. John Calvin puts it like this, It was necessary that the hearers of the Word should be most certainly assured that the doctrine of the gospel was not the word of the apostles, but of God Himself, not a voice rising from the earth, but descending from heaven. I want you to be encouraged by this, because today, someone is speaking to you. Who is telling you today that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Who is telling you today, He is risen, go, tell the disciples, Jesus is no longer dead, Who is saying to you today, right now, Come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are these messengers of men? Messages of men? Listen, North Shore Community Church, I I meet people and I know they mean well. And they say things like, I've really been straining to hear the voice of God. You know, I'm really trying to hear what God's saying to my life, you know, and really listening. And I appreciate that. I appreciate what they're saying. What they're saying is, I'm trying to make a decision about something, and I, and I need God's help in making that decision. But when you say things like, I'm really trying to hear God's voice, I say to them, You know, I never have any trouble hearing God's voice, ever, ever, because He says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but will have everlasting life. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, loud and clear. You shall not steal. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We have a high priest who has opened heaven's door and ushers us in through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Do I have any trouble at all hearing that? Crystal clear. The Bible, the message clear from God, loud and clear. you get my point? Do you get Paul's point? Every Sunday school class. Every youth group meeting. On Friday nights. Every kids club, Friday nights, every families with the young children, Friday nights, every home fellowship group that we have, every women's Bible study, every men's Bible study, every sermon where we open the Bible. It is a message from God to you. Okay? Be there. Hear Him. Hear Him. And then point number four, just this greeting from God to you. Will you hear it today? What did Jesus do for you? Let verses 3 through 5 right now just wash over you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What has He done for you lately? He gives you grace and peace. You know, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, there are about a dozen churches across the country, and the name of those churches are Grace and Peace. Grace and Peace, Presbyterian Church. I like that. I like the name of our church. I don't want to change it, but I like that. Don't you? What are they saying to their neighborhood? They're saying, this is a harsh world, and we all have a lot of anxiety, and we would like you to meet our Jesus, who's full of grace and who brings us peace, because He's the Prince of Peace. I think that's a pretty good message. North Shore Community Church, can that be our message to our neighbors and colleagues and family and friends in a harsh and anxious world? Grace and peace. And then he says again see, the thread is, has now begun about the cross. He mentioned he was dead, but now the thread begins about the cross. He gave himself for our sins. And by the time he crescendos in chapter 3, verse 13, he will reach back into the book of Deuteronomy and he will explain to us how Jesus Christ brings us the forgiveness of our sins and makes us right with God. How? Chapter 3, verse 13. I hope we will all memorize it in the coming months. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And the curses of the Old Testament that belong to the criminal, of course the criminal will be hanged, of course. But Jesus? Yes, Jesus, crucified. The curses of God fall on the innocent one who is without sin. He gave Himself willingly for our sins. And then the second phrase, and He delivers us from the present evil age. What is this? This is the language of rescue, the language of rescue, of deliverance. My friends, in the book of Exodus, when Israel is in bondage to Egypt under the wickedness of Pharaoh, God comes and He rescues them and He delivers them and makes them His people. And when they are scattered throughout Assyria and Babylon, God gathers His people back to Himself. And now Jesus Christ has come to you, and He has rescued you from this present evil age. We're not just set free from the guilt of sin, but we are then set free from that creeping power of corruption that's all around us because every day you hear a voice. There's some voice that is saying, you know you really should have contempt for people whose skin color is different from yours. And you say, wait a minute. Jesus loved me when I was far off and very different. And how I can love anybody? And the voice comes into your mind, go ahead sleep around. And then you remember, that Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. And He is faithful to you. And so you will be faithful to your wife or to your husband. And He startles you. And He corrects you. And He makes you new. And the voice says, be greedy. Be greedy. Grab all you can. Own all you can. And hold on to all you have. And you say, but wait a minute. He's been generous to me. I'm actually going to look for opportunities to share what He's given me with other people for His name's sake. You see, can you identify the ways He set you free? Rob, thank you for sharing with us earlier in this service ways that He set you free. And that's part of your story, your story, your story. He's been at work in your life. And does He have more work to do? Does He have more work to do in Rob? He has more work to do in me. And so, do you need rescue? Of course, we still need to be rescued from this present evil age that wants to handcuff us and make us like that. You come and ask for prayer. After the service, we always have people down front to pray for you. Come forward and say, you know what? I could use prayer because I'm trapped by this present age like this. Or Wednesday night prayer meeting. Wednesday night prayer meeting, that's when we pray for our sins, about our sins, and we confess them, and we ask for deliverance. Do we have a… De- someone once said to me, do you have a deliverance ministry at North Shore? I said, well, probably not like you're thinking of, you know, the exorcist where the girl's head spins around and he says, hocus pocus. Ours as as is not like that. But of course we have a deliverance ministry here. Jesus Christ who delivers us from the present evil age and sets His people free, and we seek His face, and we turn to Him again and come on Wednesday nights. And we we seek Jesus together. And then it says He does the Father's will. I love this. And Pastor John, you told us so many times the words of Jesus, for I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. And Jesus works out His will, not only God's will in His life, but in your life. For God is sovereign over your life, and He's working out His will in your life. Do you remember uh, Joseph? sold way back in the book of Genesis, sold, betrayed by his brothers, thrown into the pit, right? They steal his coat. They sell him into slavery. He makes his way to Egypt. Potiphar's wife accuses him, and he gets thrown into a stinking Egyptian prison, and he's forgotten for years. But he gets out, Makes his way to Pharaoh and he's eventually reunited with his brothers. Remember, they come, his brothers come and he meets them and then he reveals himself, I am Joseph. And they go, ah, 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 ah. and you remember what Joseph said? What did Joseph say to them? Joseph said, Do not be distressed because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And then two verses later, but God sent me ahead of you. And then verse 8 a third time, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. It is of Jesus Christ who carries out the will of God the Father, even in your life as well. So, what a greeting we've received this morning as we've opened the book. Grace and peace. Is Jesus really your Prince of Peace? Today, today, Acknowledge, say, Jesus, I've got a lot of anxiety. Be my Prince of Peace. He gave Himself for your sins. Do you have sins that continue to make you feel so guilty? Yes, well, repent then confess. And He throws them, we are told, into the bottom of the sea. And as we said in our Sunday school class this morning, He not only throws our sins into the bottom of the sea, but then He puts up a sign that says... No fishing. Forgiveness. And He remembers our sins no more. He took your shame. He took your guilt. He rescues you from this present evil age so that you, like Rob and like so many around us, are trophies of God's grace. And He carries out God's will in your life. So today, when wormwood whispers into your ear, Jesus is not enough to save you. It's got to be Jesus plus, what will you say? At the end of the screw tape letters, what they call a spoiler alert, okay? You won't mind. At the very end, screw tape is furious with wormwood. And he says, you have let him slip through your fingers, and it makes me so mad to think about it. Apparently, the man has come to trust in Christ alone. It makes me mad to think of it. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not, as he saw you for the first time. And that's what happens when you come to trust in Christ alone. Your eyes are opened the foolishness, the foolishness of trusting in anything or anyone else suddenly becomes uh, distasteful to you. Screwtape analyzes it, and he says, listen to this, all the delights of heart or intellect with which you once could have tempted Him, even the delights of virtue itself. He says, you could have tempted Him with virtues to get to Jesus plus even those now seem to him like the noxious attractions of the diseased harlot would seem to a man who hears that his truly beloved and whom he has loved his whole life and who he thought was dead is now alive and at the door. Who would he choose? What a greeting we've had this morning. He died and rose again for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we join the chorus of praise that we've had all day today. We join again in this chorus of praise, and we thank you for this greeting to us in the book of Galatians. And we look forward week after week to make it our own, We pray today we can say, your grace is enough. We pray that today we would acknowledge that you are holy, and so we need a Savior, for we are sinful, but we trust you, Lord Jesus, that the work you did on the cross is sufficient for us, and that death could not hold you. You rose again. So hear hear our prayer, especially anyone who is struggling with guilt or shame May today they find release and relief, seeing it finished at the cross for them. For those who face death, who face eternity, we pray that they would see the empty tomb that Christ is raised, and would they have peace. You are our Prince of peace. And all of us, then, we would live our lives for You, we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices to You. Take us, shape us, mold us, set us free from this evil age, we pray. Make us more like You, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing. Men, it's men, and then women, back and forth in a chorus together. Let's sing this song.